Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt. Coming to you from a grey and rainy afternoon here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. We started this week with analysis of how a weekend misinformation campaign emanating from India managed to spread like wildfire on Twitter, falsely suggesting Xi Jinping had been replaced by a coup in Beijing. Then in New York, at the United Nations Security Council, China informed its fellow members that territorial integrity should be respected following Moscow's controversial referendum in the Russian-occupied regions of Ukraine. Later in the week, Beijing and Tokyo marked 50 years of bilateral relations, with both Presidents Xi and Kishida issuing statements that it was important to take relations in a positive direction. Meanwhile, Paraguay's President Mario Abdo Benitez called on Taiwan to invest a billion dollars in his country to resist pressure from switching his nation's diplomatic recognition to China. And we finished with the United States imposing sanctions on companies accused of assisting Iran's petrochemical trade, including five companies based in China. But of course, the big news overnight has been the conclusion of a two-day conference in Washington, D.C., attended by leaders of 14 island nations from the Pacific region and the announcement of a U.S. $810 million package from the Biden administration to facilitate everything from economic development to climate change, fisheries protection, visits from the U.S. Peace Corps and assistance from the FBI in police training. It's noted that figure is about $200 million less than any one of its arms deals signed with Ukraine or Taiwan this year. There's a lot more analysis to come on this over the next couple of days and weeks, but we're going to start this episode with reaction from Beijing and analysts in the China sphere to what this deal means and what Beijing has planned next. And then you're going to hear from Brian Wong. He's the founding editor-in-chief of the Oxford Political Review, and he also wrote a provocative opinion piece for SUP.com just recently about the geopolitical pressures facing US businesses based in mainland China, and he's also written another prescient and most personal piece on what it's like to be caught in the middle of the increasing tensions between China and the US. He's got some very interesting things to say. Let's get amongst it. As I speak these words, it's midnight in Washington, D.C., and the leaders of 14 Pacific nations are most probably tucked away in their beds after a special White House dinner after a two-day summit. But how is this conference and this announcement being viewed by Beijing, who earlier this year sent Foreign Minister Wang Yi on a mission to do pretty much the exact same thing, sign up these nations to an agreement on economic development, aid for climate change, and support for security, and training of police forces. Koala She is my colleague on the China desk, and she's been following this. Koala, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Koala, as I said, this agreement comes after Wang Yi's visit across the region in May, and he sought to sign up the Pacific nations to Beijing's version of this agreement, 
but it didn't quite work out. Can you recap for us what was in that agreement that Wang Yi hoped to get these nations to sign up to? So first of all, I think the uh, the actual agreement was never made public. So it was just a like a draft proposal that's been like sharing around on the internet through media that we are able to see that China is aiming to focus on um, expansion of law enforcement cooperation, those Pacific Island nations. What they mean by expanding law enforcement cooperation, they mean focuses on the police training. So there are already some police training that China has been doing uh, with other Pacific Island nations. But the expansion they're talking about there, it's more training and more joint combat activities in, in such a kind. So they didn't reach an agreement on the proposal. Uh, and then later on, I think what China did instead is that they brought up a uh, position paper to show China's stand on the um, continual co- cooperation with the Pacific uh, Islands nations. So in China's position paper, they did not mention any specific details about the expansion of the law enforcement cooperation. They touched on security um, a little bit, but in a very vague form. Um, and then most of the uh, stuff that they, that China said in that position paper only touch on traditional cooperation that they already been um, doing with the other nations, um, including trade, climate change, stuff like that. And of course, the Solomon Islands were probably the most visible of nations who wanted to sign up to a security agreement with China, but we'll move on to that in just a minute. What are you hearing from China watchers, from analysts and your sources in Beijing about the response to this fairly extensive announcement from Washington overnight? Yeah, so I think most people would like easily make an assumption that US is trying to use this occasion to unite to bring those uh, Pacific Islands nations along on the same page with the U.S. to counter China in some way due to rapid rise in the region, of course. But I think, you know, one of the experts that I talked to um, is Wang Hui Yao, um, the founder of a very famous reputable Beijing-based think tank, the Center for China and Globalization. Um, so he's the founder of CG, and he has actually told me that the doors are open, actually, for the Pacific Islands nations to work with other countries. China in, doesn't force them to work with China only in any way. So this is not something, um, according to Wang, that China has been doing. So the doors are definitely open to all those nations that they can choose to to work with whoever they want. And the U.S. Wang particularly pointed out that there are a lot of like strategic concerns that, that might have. But apart from whatever concerns that they have in the Pacific region, they shouldn't use a chance to to actually force those nations to, to pick a side. I mean, there was no point for them doing that. And Wang particularly pointed out a um, President Biden's statement during the United Nations General Assembly last week that they will not ask other countries to pick a side between U.S. and others. So basically, Basically, the summit was the first kind of a summit that the U.S. has been hosting to a lot of uh, observers and to China and to other countries as well. Uh, but for those specific island nations, um, they shouldn't be used as some, some sort of um, tool or anything to get into the geopolitical competition between U.S. and China. And Wang particularly also um, pointed out that um, he hoped that the U.S. is actually using this kind of summit to push for real economic benefits for those nations to actually to work on improvement of people's livelihood instead of yeah, forcing them into the geopolitical competitions with China. And that definitely ties in with the overall approach of China to support economic development without, as they say, any interference in sovereign politics. 
What of the Solomon Islands, though, Koala, and its existing security agreement with China? Now, yesterday, there were reports that the Solomon Islands were refusing to sign the agreement. I see a photo this morning of all the nations just before their dinner, and Solomon's Prime Minister, Manasseh Sogavare, is standing right next to Joe Biden. What has changed? Mm. So, yeah, what, what's interesting is that in the 11-point declaration of partnership that U.S. has signed with 14 Pacific uh, Islands nations, it's that uh, Solomon Islands uh, is on that agreement. So they designed on that. They designed on the bundle agreement, uh, despite early reports about uh, their refusal to sign. So what has changed? We, we are unsure um, from most news reports or the White House statement that we have seen that what have been changed and what have the U.S. might have done in the negotiation with the Solomon Islands. But from a ABC report from um, Australia, they've seen that it looks like Solomon Islands sent a note to other Pacific Islands nations that the uh, not interested in signing the agreement because there were no consensus on over there. So what they appear to argue about is a specific reference in the draft declaration of partnership that U.S. wants the agreement for uh, the Pacific Island nations to consult with one another uh, closely on secure decisions with regional impacts. And just to interrupt, Koala, that's very interesting, that phrase quote, consult with one another closely on security decisions with regional impacts. Mm-hmm. That was deleted, and that seemed to specifically look towards the Solomon's agreement with Beijing. Yeah, exactly. So in my opinion, I think that's in a very apparent reference to the Solomon Islands security agreement with Beijing, uh, given that uh, they're the only one country among the 14. Um, they have signed such agreement with Beijing. According to the ABC News report, this might be something that Solomon Islands that have argued with the US on. And then we are not seeing that specific reference up here on the final declaration of the partnership. There's other details in this that we've skipped across that we will get into detail in in weeks to come, and that is the US has signed its first ever defence agreement with Papua New Guinea, which is very interesting because there's a bit of geostrategic rivalry with China going on there. The big question, of course, is what happens next for Beijing? What are you hearing about Beijing's next moves given what could be described as a full court press of Washington to really reinstate its presence in the Pacific? Yeah, so I think from uh, most observers, Chinese observers that I um, talked to this week, um, in particular, um, a Renmin University uh, professor, Shirin uh, Hong um, in Beijing, um, he told me that it would take long, actually, um, and a compli- complicated process to for China to continue to uh, push for um, the security agreement that, that uh, it's aiming to reach with the rest of the Pacific Island nations. Um, and um, China's strategy, China's policy toward um, the Pacific uh, Island nations, the region, uh, definitely would have um, a little change, um, even though they might feel increased um, threats or competition um, from the U.S. Um, I mean, like from, from the signs that they've seen uh, from the U.S. of holding the, this kind of summit, um, they, they, they might feel and uh, they might feel more uh, increased competition from, from, from the U.S. Uh, with them in the region. But it would be a um, um, complicated and long, considerable process for them to, to actually to adjust their strategy in the region. So from in the near, near future, from the observers that I um, uh, spoken to, they believe that there will be probably no immediate or large change in terms of um, 
China's strategy toward the region is definitely a region that um, China cares about. And China will continue to push for cooperations on other fronts, including those traditional areas on trade and climate change and disaster relief uh, for, for those people. But in terms of um, reaching a security agreement, it will take long and it's a complicated process. Indeed, there's a lot more to come on this. We will indeed look forward to your reporting and analysis on scmp.com. Koala Shirt, thank you very much for your time. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Brian Wong is the founding editor-in-chief of the Oxford Political Review and a Rhodes Scholar from Hong Kong. His latest opinion piece in the SEMP has focused on the reports that US businesses are making exit plans from mainland China if there is a war across the Taiwan Strait, but he's also been contributing some thought-provoking pieces on a variety of media platforms on the web lately. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Brian, can I first turn to your most recent piece published on scp.com? These reports of US businesses making exit plans from mainland China and speculation, hot takes and opinions running rife about potential invasion of Taiwan. Is this an unstoppable trend? Is it a natural evolution or is it a conquest of nationalism and geopolitics over the self-interest and profit motive? I think we have to differentiate between two different questions in that very interesting thought you put to me there. The first is, are we going to see likely military escalation over Taiwan Straits? And the second, essentially, is what's the likely response from businesses or in general? You know, what are the undergirding escalations for behaviors of businesses uh, both at present and also into the future? Uh, my short answer to the first is I think the risk of that is overstated. I genuinely think that, you know, Beijing is very much cognizant of limitations and also both business interest-based and also military capacity-related constraints upon the prospects of uh, a violent or an aggressive um, intervention over the Straits. And indeed, if you look at the statements from Beijing, the primary uh, end goal and the objective at hand here is peaceful reunification. I do not think Beijing has deviated from that line, and I think it tends to portray it as having done so either sensationalist or rooted in basically make-believe or tends to interpret the words of Beijing in ways that suit you know, escalation and militarization from the other end of the Pacific as well. Now, as for the second question, the behaviors of businesses, it is plausible that businesses would look to definitely reduce their, their commitments and the extent to which they're bound to China in terms of being overexposed to it. But I would also calibrate or, or caveat that this is you know, just like any other ordinary business set of activities in uh, regions where there are heightened geopolitical tensions. It's a very understandable act of reducing overexposure, of hedging. It is not, on the contrary to some assertions, again, you know, businesses pulling out en masse from China. If you look at the trade and investment between China and also European Union, the UK, the US, they've actually, you know, over the past five years or so, gone up by large and scaled new heights. Yes, there are, you know, there's some degree of wariness and fatigue and also reluctance to, to double down in light of China's zero COVID restrictions and also other potential geopolitical tensions. But I do not see this mass withdrawal phenomenon as actually manifesting. And to the extent that it is occurring to 
a smaller scale where some businesses in lieu of setting up headquarters or factories in China are shifting instead to Vietnam, that could be attributed to both economic rationale, as I've highlighted, but also the broader concerns over, you know, the repercussions of China's um, isolationist public health policies or its handling and approaches to businesses on a domestic level. None of these, by the way, has anything to do with perceived or expected Chinese military aggression. So what I'm trying to say here is military aggression and anticipation of fallout that followed from that is probably one amongst many, 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 many variables, which in turn are contributing towards a reduced presence, but not a withdrawal and a complete bailing out or bailing from China, so to speak. Uh, And that's, I guess, my, my diagnosis here. Well, some of the other causes I'll get into in just a second, but can I ask you, is there a role for businesses in trying to calm things down and trying to lower the tone or the temperature of the rhetoric, or do they face the threat of being accused of taking sides? So this is a really good question. I think businesses are in a bit of a pickle. And the reasoning for that is obviously, if we look at the the news headlines, the coverage, the discourses concerning China right now, the most visceral and the most vocal components of a discourse tend to be quite ideologically entrenched and embedded. So you see discourses ranging from you know, condemnations over China's domestic political governance and policies to Chinese foreign policy being you know, framed as bellicose and aggressive and even inimical to the global order to finalize the trade wars and spat over that, reflecting upon and evolving into broader musings over China's alleged violations of international protocol and also labor standards and other complaints compliance requirements and whatnot. And so in short, the most vocal, sort of the loudest voices in the room right now are bound to be inevitably those who are radicals, uh, not, not just you know against China or towards China from you know, the rest of the world, but also within China. We see the rise of this high, hyper-nationalistic, jingoistic, sort of quasi-autarky-centered narratives that portray China as being on an irreversible and inevitable ascent and any and all other attempts and criticism you know, that do not gel well, right, do not sit well with this narrative, are therefore uh, either traitorous or, or are inimical to China's interests and therefore should be castigated. We, we see a lot of this polarization and bifurcation, you know, playing out, not just in the political sphere, but also increasingly in the civil society, inter-country, inter-people-to-people interactions and exchanges with, I would say, McCarthyistic witch hunts that we see in America, alternatively harassment of foreign journalists and right and uh, professors and academics in China because they know they don't necessarily uh, gel well right or vibe well with the orthodoxy so to speak but th- that in my opinion is is it's true it's visceral it's ongoing but that is also the noise it's not a signal the real signals here when it comes to the economics are you know China is still hugely hugely you know, embedded and connected within global supply chains. Decoupling is not as easy as you know, snapping one's fingers and certainly won't take place over three to five years. Chinese or investments into China, investors going into China, manufacturers seek to sell and export products to China. These are folks who are incredibly bullish and also instrumental in preserving, I would say, healthy and organic relationships between China and the rest of the world, including the European Union and America by and large. So I would call these acts of silent and silent commercial diplomacy. They're silent because you don't see them. But you are engaging in them. You are seeing more commercial activities, more integration, financial harmonization. You see Chinese regulators seeking to transform the standards, okay, in order to comply with international expectations. All of these are changes that have occurred despite you know, the fanfare and the bombast you see and the media headlines by and large saying China's a new threat and China's a new enemy. At the end of the day, what distinguishes China from 
Russia quite substantially vis-a-vis the West and also the G7 and other countries is just the amount of interconnectivity and mutual alliance and dependence between China and these other countries is it's just on a whole different level, whole new level um, versus that of Russia vs the rest of G7. And that's to say, therefore, I, I certainly think there's a role to play that businesses have already been playing and are continually playing that would stretch into the future. But will this manifest in terms of vocal pushbacks against hawkishness or the narratives that China must be contained? I don't think so, right? Businesses are savvy, they're pragmatic, they don't want to, at the end of the day, be portrayed as apologists or shields for China. And ergo what's business stays in business okay as opposed to also spilling over and transforming and molding public perceptions at large it's very interesting because you also mentioned the merging or indeed the cross-contamination of economics and geopolitics forcing businesses if not to take sides then to very carefully try and navigate the current climate Uh, but you also mentioned the need for a new set of quote, fast-thinking people who can accurately process macro risks in international relations. Can you unpack for us what that means? Absolutely. So I think the, the starting point of my observation here and a way of reconciling my remarks literally here and the earlier remarks I made in the article is that inevitably geopolitics is going to have an increasing and precipitously you know, prominent role in shaping economic decisions and business activities. But that does not alter the fact that from the point of view of commercial interactions and economic interdependence, you know, more trade, more investment, more entry and accessibility to the Chinese market to the extent that's possible would remain on the agenda for all businesses out there, say from those who are actively undertaking absolute decisions to pivot away from China. Even if we're talking about those who are shifting you know, and hedging by diversifying, they still need China. They still will engage with China. It's just a matter of extent and degree. And it is on those questions then of degree and extent, that's where the geopolitics kicks in. So in face of this frame, you know, the, the, the gist here is that politics does matter, but it doesn't matter determinatively. We need a class of individuals that are cognizant of, you know, geoeconomics, right? Not just geopolitics, but geoeconomics. And that indeed is a kind of worldview that Liz Truss has been espousing. You know, she repeatedly affirmed the fact that she sees NATO and also G7 as more than just a political or security alliance. It's in fact a supply chain alliance an economic alliance. And what her words suggest there, and are probably a harbinger for, is a greater shift, okay, towards detachment and partial decoupling and strategically sensitive, uh, sensitive industries and core pillars of the economy between the proverbial West and China. That is going to happen to some extent, not to a full extent, because of all the reasons I've outlined just then, but that's going to occur. And in face of that, businesses have to be cognizant. They have to be alert and woke you know, work to the exact challenges they might face of either being swept and caught in the middle by sanctions and counter sanctions or being forced to comply with competing and divergent regulatory standards that might even be contradictory and conflicting or worse yet, you know, finding themselves a subject of boycott campaigns and harassment, which we've seen in China over the past decade, right, where like this sort of commercialized and also um, consumerist nationalism has been brandished as a tool to deter businesses that are deemed to offend the sensibilities of the Chinese people and their alleged dignity. So in short, I think the, the need for savviness has never been as prominent and you know, significant. And that is why a new class of folks who understand economics, understand supply chains, but also broader macro dynamics pertaining to security, 
to political trends, to the fulcrum of action and also tensions between countries. And then we need this new class of individuals to rise up, to speak out. And indeed, we've seen this group or this class of thinkers, intellectuals and analysts emerge through the think tank come geopolitical analysis scene in the West, right? You've got you know, huge and often very vibrant uh, geopolitical risk consultancies out there. You've also got think tanks that specialize in supply chains, trade security, industrial security, defense and all that in, in the States, in the UK and beyond. But when it comes to Asia, that's where I think, you know, that, that's maybe where we have a relative dart, where we don't have um, think tanks, consultancies, and groups and individuals that engage in exactly this sort of work. Where at the very least, we don't have homegrown, you know, endogenous folks that do that. Whereas you have, you, know, you certainly see a lot of external corporations, uh, large MNCs, and think tanks, you know, station their bases here. That's for sure. But we don't really have a homegrown Asian geopolitical strategic set of networks and thinkers, at least as far as I'm aware, who engage in this sort of work. So um, what I'm gesturing towards here is just perhaps we need this class and this group to emerge from amongst us. And that way we can have a more even-handed and level playing field, to level the playing field when it comes to geopolitics and strategy across all countries. It's not between East and West. It's not between Asia and, and the rest. That, that's not what I want to frame this as. I myself, you know, I eschew and loathe the claim that, oh, the West is always inimical to Asia or antithetical towards Asia. That's not true. But we certainly need folks who are more well-versed in local idiosyncrasies and a culture below to be undertaking their geopolitical and strategic advisory services that outlined in the article, which is why I pop that phrase and observation into that piece um, that I most recently wrote for The Post. You also write there are signs of hope uh, in the consensus around auditing rules for Chinese firms listing on Wall Street. Can you explain a bit more about that? Is that your is that the shiny light of a potential, if not detente, at least you know a way forward? It's a light, but I wouldn't call it detente. I wouldn't call it a shining light. It is a light. Um, overarchingly, I'm still somewhat you know, conservatively pessimistic about the trends that we see. The headwinds are strong, you know, whilst the, the underlying motivations for more coupling and collaboration to tackle joint challenges are certainly there, but these motivations could be circumstantially and in the short to medium term overridden, right, by other factors, such as, of course, this paranoia or this feeling that national security is violated. And that doesn't just apply to the U.S. and how it views China. It applies to how China views the world, right? There's always this, this constant sense that maybe there's some interference with national security, this instigation against the core interests of China and how China must protect itself in face of that. These are the optics. These are perceptions. I'm not you know, condoning or, or pushing back against them, just laying them out because these are actually there, the extant intuitions that are there amongst policymakers. So the broad trend, as we see, is one where in over the next three to five years, at least, right, we're going to see more distancing. And whilst the arrival at a consensus over the stock exchange and the listings is encouraging, I do not see that as a turning point. This is not an inflection point. It is probably an anomaly to the short, medium term norm. But what is more interesting and that's one I want to highlight here, is that in, say, five to 10 years' time, when we realise that climate change and global warming requires us to work together, we realise that the economic interests and the interests of firms and consumers do call for us to set aside you know, undue and unnecessary ideological squabbles. No, I'm not saying that all squabbles are ideological and therefore unnecessary. I'm saying some of them are. 
Upon that realization, can we turn to the current partial unstalling over financial regulation and auditing rules as a source of inspiration for a new mode of vending? I would say yes, possibly. We can indeed look towards the now to figure out how the future could work. But the timing is not yet right for that sort of source or sourcing of inspiration, right? And a recalibration to Sino-American relations until we reach that tipping point where, again, there's a, a pushback, right? And a, a genuinely popularly accepted pushback against the hawkishness. I do not envision this current respite as being anything more than just a brief episode of solace. And that's where I would sort of draw a nuanced conclusion. Yes, there's room for hope. But the time for us to feel and to sense that hope, to really you know, recognize that hope in reality, to have good grounds in that hope manifest in practice is not yet right. I don't think we're at that point where we could be optimistic about the unsawing of the relations between China and the USA. Brian, we've spoken here about think tanks, about governments, about businesses, but I'm remembering that great phrase, all politics is personal. Can I just quote your own piece back to you that you published recently in Time? And it's going to be an edited version, but people can find this online. Let me quote this, what you wrote. It's all very well for the governments of US and China to demonise each other, but what about the people caught in the middle? There are American expats who can curse in vivid near-native Mandarin and Chinese students who binge-watch American TV and regard Starbucks as a second home. There are people like Eileen Gu and people like me, Hong Kong-born, Western-educated with many American friends. The lack of nuance, context, historical understanding, cultural insight, basic intelligence and plain goodwill in Sino-US relations pains us. Many among us reject the lowbrow framing of good versus evil, democracy versus autocracy, or the clash of civilizations. None of this is part of our lived experience, yet we are also wary of speaking out. I feel like this is the introduction to a whole other podcast episode, but can you extrapolate a bit more on that for us? Thank you. I mean, thank you for quoting from that article. Uh, it was a rather personal piece for me to write because, you know, I, I often find myself and I see myself at the very least as a bridge builder. I firmly believe that China and the West should work together and should set aside differences, should learn to reform themselves internally and also orient themselves externally towards more, not less collaboration and interlinkage. As a result of that, you know, I've been called all sorts of names by both sides. And it's only understandable that people feel that way about my stance. You know, everyone is entitled to an opinion. It's a bit like the right to breathe. Unfortunately, not all opinions are equally well substantiated, but that doesn't mean that we therefore inhibit people from speaking because we believe, or at least I believe, in the freedom of speech and expression as opposed to compliance with and being sycophants to political orthodoxy. With that said, you know, at the end of the day, we live in a shared space. That's the earth. We are members of a common species and the challenges that we undergo and are about to endure are shared. It doesn't discriminate. Climate change doesn't discriminate or it does rather based on your wealth and, and to some extent, fortunately, national GDP. But it shouldn't discriminate. Right. And it affects all of us, maybe not equally, but at the very least, you know, it is a pressing challenge for us all. And we are sitting in face of climate change, biosecurity risks, artificial intelligence, potential nuclear war, proliferation of weapons and, and warfare and, and say, well, you know, I don't agree with your values. And maybe let's let's fight it out first. Let's not tackle these challenges. And, and you know, uh, these challenges exist, but I'm not going to look up. I'm going to look down upon you. Don't look up, look down. Then that's the ethos that's going to drive a wedge between any and all 
components that should ideally come together and can join together and researching and tackling these challenges. And now all we see instead, right, is this acrimonious, vociferous infighting and squabbles that are very real consequences, not just for people who are caught between both sides, e.g. the content of my article, but also domestic populations, right, in countries. My, my theory is this, international engagement and contact is pivotal in allowing us to resist against closed-minded, uh, insular, nationalistic, doubling down upon, you know, doctrines and dogma. It is only through contact and communication that we change the hearts and minds of people. And this applies not just to the West vis-a-vis China, but also China vis-a-vis the West. And when you have these draconian rules that preclude interpersonal contact because they can't come in, you know, they can't quarantine for like 10 days, 15 days and whatnot, or when you have harassment of those who are trying to facilitate some degree of understanding and entente between different countries, then such inhibitions, such prohibitions would only drive us further into the ground. So I'm not naive to think that communication and talking and dialogue would solve everything kumbaya. Of course, I'm not naive. I know firsthand how divergent worldviews are and value systems are. You know, I've spoken with folks who think that in, in China, right, that America is on irreversible decline and a democracy is doomed. I've also spoken to folks in America who think that China is uh, an autocratic state that's going to be consigned towards the dustbins of irrelevance in 20 years into the future. And in reality, I think that the, you know, things are more complex and more nuanced that. And nuance oughtn't be used to justify immoral behaviors, but nuance should be employed as a way of framing pragmatism and pragmatism in engagement that's critical yet constructive. Pragmatism in terms of mutually, you know, securable and also achievable quick wins, easy wins, but also pragmatism in terms of seeking, you know, some modus vivendi, a way by which we can work together, even if we don't see eye to eye on literally everything at all. And that is why I personally found, you know, the, the, the talk that we need complete decoupling, that opening up and reform in China was a reform, uh, was a mistake, or that contacting China and allowing its, allowing, I'm using allowing here in air quotes, it's acceding to WTO was a mistake. I find such talk deeply troubling because it reflects not just arrogance, but also ahistorical revisionism that doesn't reflect upon the material benefits that have been achieved as a result of greater globalization and internationalization of the Chinese economy, of the Chinese people. And it is on that note I want to end on perhaps a more personal story. I was born and raised here in Hong Kong. I've spent nearly eight years by now in Oxford doing my default. I do not, for one, believe that just because you're Chinese, you can't embrace Western liberal values or rather the values espoused by the liberal West. Nor do I believe, by the way, that just because you're educated in a certain sector or part of the world, that you ought to therefore see any and all other powers and forces as inimical to your own moral compass and therefore something you must vanquish and destroy. I think there's so much more room for the kind of conversations and dialogues that I see many of my course mates and classmates have. Having, I see many of my friends having and bonding across cultural and ethnic and gender and all sorts of lines because we are humans, because we are similar. There's more that unites us and bonds us together than divides us. And it is on that note that that's why, you know, I remain cautiously hopeful, equally deeply infuriated and frustrated, but cautiously hopeful nevertheless about the transformative potential of frank, candid hot collaboration that cuts across cultural and also inter-people, international cleavages. Thank you very much. Well, on that note, Brian, I say thank you very much, and I feel like there's much more to talk about with you. 
Hope to speak to you again. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. That's all we've got on this day, September 30. Incidentally, if you're interested in what happened on this day in history, in 1966, the world's first nuclear vessel, the USS Nautilus, was commissioned. In 1947, Pakistan joined the United Nations. And in 1938, Britain, France, Germany and Italy signed the Munich Agreement, whereby Germany was allowed to annex the Sudetenland region of what was then known as Czechoslovakia. Make of that what you will. Don't forget you can find the latest news and analysis on scmp.com. You can follow our 24-hour global newsroom on Twitter at SMP News. You can find me at J underscore Watt for your bouquets of brickbats or banter. Look forward to speaking again next week. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.